0: We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Levovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Like, I love writing books. I love, you know, being
1: an author. Writing a collection of recipes for a book, it's a story. So not every recipe can go into whatever book you're working on. The story and the narrative that I'm working with at that particular time is my parameter.
0: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Today, I'm happy to welcome Hetty McKinnon on the show. Hetty is one of the most prolific recipe developers and cookbook authors in food media. Whenever I see her byline, I know the recipe will be plant-based, reliable, and highly craveable. On this episode, we talk about how she keeps up the seemingly endless stream of ideas and how she stays excited cooking with vegetables, even in the middle of the deep winter freeze. Hint, sometimes eating seasonally is just overrated. I hope you enjoy. Hattie McKinnon, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. (laughs) I'm happy to have you here. I was thinking that this is a really nice full circle moment for me um, because I don't know if you know this, but when I interviewed you about your cookbook family at Books Are Magic, um, God, what year was that? I feel like it was...
1: 2019? 2019. 2019
0: maybe? I was working at Bon Appetit and that was the first author interview I'd ever done live, um, like as an event before. And now this is the first interview that I've hosted for the Taste podcast. So oh, wow. I'm really glad that, um, that you've been both of those people. <laughs> wow, what an honor. I know. I, I feel honored, honestly, because. Um, it's fun to get to pick up a conversation that we started a long time ago and, and add new things to it. Yeah, and like that's
1: and a lot has changed since family. A lot of cha- lot has changed since 2019.
0: Yeah, a lot has changed in the world in mm-hmm. our lives. Um, and I'm interested to talk about you know the way that your perspective has evolved as a recipe developer and a cookbook author since then. Um, but to start, I was thinking that it'd be nice to give a little bit of context because you know, I think myself and a lot of people have seen your name like all over the web. You contribute to Bon Appetit, New York Times Cooking, so many different places, and you have published cookbooks of your own. But I'm curious to hear a little bit about um, just your journey of where you got started and and maybe also how you think that your approach towards cooking and recipe developing has changed since then.
1: Yeah, Um, it's a great question because I think People in America kind of know my work from, you know, the publications that you just mentioned, but it's kind of like al- already partway through my career because mm-hmm. when I moved to the States in at the very, very beginning of 2015, I left behind... A business in Sydney, which was a salad business called Arthur Street Kitchen. That's what people might hear that word, kind of associated with me. Um, that name, and that's what it was. It was a salad business which I ran from my home in Sydney. Um, I biked vegetarian salads around my neighbourhood, and I did that for about four years. And in that four years, I was continually asked to write to give recipes to um, you know my customers, and. Before the business, I it was kind of – the business was like my first foray into food. I, I didn't really cook that much before then and um, I was living in this beautiful place in Sydney and I just really wanted to do something that kept me grounded in the neighbourhood. So I thought, wow, why don't I just cook for people? And um, it just turned into this gorgeous, magical business where, you know, customers became friends and I just established – I just found – I just discovered the the joy of sharing food. That was really where I saw it. And um, you know, in two thousand and I think eleven, I started writing a book um, about the business. So it was released in two thousand and thirteen. It was actually self published. Uh, initially, I only published it for my customers, and that was all it was ever meant for. And you know, things happen. Someone saw it. Someone gave it to a friend, and. This one friend turned out to be a publisher who approached me and wanted to publish Community as a um, nationwide book in Australia. So that was kind of my start of kind of transitioning from being a cook into a writer, into an author. Um, everything I know I've learned on the job. Like I'm not trained as a cook. I'm not trained as a writer. I, w- I did have a Korean PR for many years before I was doing this. Um, but, yeah, I mean... I think when I left Sydney, it was, like, with a really heavy heart. You know, I was leaving behind a business. I was leaving behind friends and customers that had become, like, family to me. And um, I came to America and kind of thought, what am I going to do? But Community had just been released recently, and I thought, actually, maybe I'll write a second book. And that was the the book called Neighbourhood. So that was kind of my first book that was released in the U.S., Um, And then, you know, I actually really wanted to do the salad delivery business in Brooklyn. (laughs) I tried. I worked out of commercial kitchen for a while, but it just didn't really have – it's. you know, it's different. Like food delivery was very new in Sydney then, and here, like everyone gets their food delivered. And nobody really wanted to have chats with me because everyone was too busy. And just all the things that I loved about food and that connection – wasn't really there in terms of like the, that that business as it existed. Um, so then I ended up just really writing about food and um, just trying different things. And I started my own magazine in 2017 called Peddler, which was like a multicultural food magazine. And that kind of took me down like a different path of really connecting more with my cultural identity and So the books subsequently since, like Family, I think the one that we spoke about at Books of Magic was probably the first piece of broad, like mainstream work that I did that felt like I was really delving into my my childhood and my past and trying to connect the dots. Like most of the work that you see that I do now is really me trying to connect the dots, you know, kind of in real time. And I tell that story, whether that be in a book or in um, just even a recipe, like all the recipes I write, like there's a story to them and there's a reason I'm writing them. And even if the people who are cooking them at home don't really see that, it for me it has to have like that type of resonance. So... Yeah, that's that's the short that's the short version of the story. The short of the
0: long of yeah. the multicontinental story. Mm. It's funny, you know, I haven't been to Australia, so this might just be my fantasy, but I'm picturing you like, you know, biking down like a beautiful sunny street mm-hmm. with all of these salads and then coming to New York and turning on to I don't know, Atlantic Avenue or yeah. some crazy street in Brooklyn. I feel like the fantasy is is maybe a little bit less dreamy here in some ways. It's
1: absolutely. You just basically captured it. You know, <laughs> I, I was like – I had salads. I was bringing – I was working for a, from a commercial kitchen um, on Flushing Avenue. I was bringing the salads home on the subway – because I wanted to only deliver to my neighbourhood, which at the time was Carroll Gardens, and then I would pile all the salads on the back of my bike, the bike which I'd shipped over from Sydney, and... I would bike them around. But in that time that I was delivering salads, I wasn't really speaking to anyone because it would, the orders were to leave the salads in the vestibule because that's such a (laughs) New York thing, right? (laughs) Nobody has vestibules in Sydney. Um, And yeah, so basically you captured it perfectly.
0: That's a lot of (laughs) schlepping. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I think I still have residual trauma from carrying this very pungent, like broccoli salad to a Friends Giving on the subway last year. It had like (laughs) scallions and and nuts in it and cheese. and I just knew everybody was smelling it and looking at me. It was terrible.
1: <laughs> that was me. but I probably had about twenty salads.
0: Yeah, you were you were worse. You were the lady with all of the salads. Yeah, yeah, totally. So it's interesting to me to think about like all of these different audiences that you've had over time. Mm. Do you now, because you have a following on social media, I'm sure there are people dming you all of the time? There's the whole New York Times comments cooking section. Mm -hmm. Do you think about, how do you think about your audience now when you're developing recipes? And is it the same way that you thought about this community that you knew very much in Australia, or is it broader now? Um, I think it's definitely broader, but I think that um, all my
1: recipes, doesn't matter who it's for, all have my personality. Like, it's almost like I always think all recipe developers have a brand. You know, they have a particular style of developing recipes. And I, I think I definitely do. Um, I think that I develop, it's almost like I try and tailor my recipes for the particular brand. Like New York Times, for example, they really want me to do weeknight friendly cooking. And so things that it can be whipped up in 30 minutes. Um, vegetarian, and so that to me is almost like a, a formula of what they're looking for. So that gives me parameters to develop recipes. I really love parameters. Actually, I love like thinking, okay, what can I do that's quick, that's nourishing, it has some protein, it has vegetables, it has colour, um, pantry ingredients, all that kind of thing. Um, you know, whereas for example, like Bon Appétit, I think has a very different brand to the time so when I'm developing for them like I did that big vegetarian Thanksgiving spread for them back in November and that was really fun it was more kind of like you don't you could invest more time in the recipes and I have this column in Australia for the ABC that I've been doing for four years and that is very much um led by kind of the seasons and like fun, like the editor there tells me, you know, I'm looking for like a tray bake this month and then kind of just gives me, you know, room to run with that idea. So I think in terms of the editorial, most of it is very led by the publication um, and the, the individual brands that they have. But in terms of, say, my books, books are to me my total joy. Like I love writing books. I love you know, being an author, because writing a collection of recipes for a book, it's a story. So not every recipe can go into whatever book you're working on. Well not for me. For like my books to me are, are very much a story. And so the story and the narrative that I'm working with at that particular time is my parameter. Um and there are recipes that I do write that I think for example, they are so good I have to keep it for the book. But it's it's not like I think that recipe is so good, but it's like I feel like it encapsulate, encapsulates something about me or my story that feels so special that I have to keep it for something that has my name on the cover, you know, if that makes sense. But I think a lot of authors do do that. Um, so, yeah, and, and in terms of like I say I also have this newsletter that I started well, I've had a newsletter list forever, and I'm the worst newsletter writer on earth. I had this list for about ten years, and I didn't maybe once a year I would send a newsletter. Like even when my books came out, I didn't send newsletters, letting people know. And I'm, I'm sure terrible. Your PR
0: hated that. Oh yeah, <laughs>
1: I mean most of the time they didn't even know that I had this like kind of quite substantial list. And about a year ago, I decided, look, I want to cut back a little bit on the editorial and really invest. In my own brand, um, and so I did that, and I, you know, I moved over to Substack, like everybody else in the world, and um, you know, I gave the newsletter a name, which is "To Vegetables with Love," which was kind of, to me at the time, like this transition from "To Asia with Love" into Tenderheart. Like Tenderheart hadn't been announced yet, but I knew that that was the direction in which I was heading, and. To be honest, like vegetables is kind of just my thing. So, um, you know, it it would be endless inspiration for that newsletter. And so in that newsletter is kind of like just it's very freeing to write a newsletter, as I'm sure you know. Like you can just basically write whatever you want for your audience. Um, you can put recipes, like the re- two recipes that went out today are two kind of Lunar New Year recipes. Um, you know, one is for a lo jai, which is this kind of um, very traditional dish that my mum makes and it has like a lot of ingredients, which I couldn't do for the times really. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And uh, or for much editorial. Editorial never really wants a lot of ingredients anymore, as you know. So you know, and you can put like ingredients that you do have to go to a specialty store to find, but it's worth the effort. Um, so it's for me, it's like I—it's a chance for to really educate the home cook about a dish that means a lot to me. That might not m- might use ingredients that are not in your pantry right now, but I can also tell them where to go buy it. And you know, it, it's there's a lot of parameters with editorial, but when it's your newsletter, you can just keep going and going and going, which is kind of fun.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really fun. And I remember you did like a mushroom cobbler recipe Mm, in your newsletter recently that um, just like set off alarm bells in my head. I was like, I need to make this as soon as possible, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is something I like about your food because I also am very much like a vegetables Mm. lover. Um, And I think that sometimes like people think that vegetables I guess mushrooms are a fungus, but same thing, Um, (laughs) that they can't be comforting in some way, right? That, like, it has to be healthful or maybe it's, like, raw and right now it's midwinter. I'm Mm -hmm. having, like, the hardest time um, thinking about ways that I want to cook with these things. And I think that, like, that also is something that I really like about your recipes is that, like, to me it seems like they're almost produce-driven first. Do you start with, like, an ingredient you want to highlight or how do you kind of – shape the recipe from the idea you get it 2 a.m. into the actual <laughs> recipe?
1: Um, most of the time they start with a vegetable. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm very – like I've been a vegetarian for, oh, God, a long time, since I was 19, like decades, decades Cute. and decades and decades. So. You know, vegetables are a huge part of my life and, um, you know, I lead a very vegetarian lifestyle. So I'm very balanced with the way I eat. I love vegetables. So I always lead with a vegetable. Um, And, you know, I think it's controversial to say, but I don't always eat seasonally. You know, like if (laughs) I... I will eat – if I really want a tomato in winter, I'm just going to have one and I'm going to prepare it in a way that is still going to make it delicious. For example, you can buy tomatoes all year round from the supermarket, which is where I shop most of the time for my produce. I do go to my farmer's market, but, you know, I can't carry, like, enough for a whole week. Mm -hmm. So I supplement a lot from my local supermarkets. And, you know, if you you want a tomato in the winter – slow roast it. It's the perfect thing to do because I slow roasted a punnet of like cherry tomatoes a couple of weekends ago and it had so much flavour. It also warms your house because you put the oven on. Mm -hmm. You never want to roast a tomato in the summer because your whole – you know, New York City apartments, you're just hot for like hours. But this is like the perfect time to roast a tomato and it's it just bursts with flavor. Like I just I was actually quite shocked of how much flavor it had. Um And like, so you do things like that. I don't, like, I like root vegetables, but I'm not the type of person that's eating root vegetables every night. Like right now, I'm on this kale salad kick. So every night, and I want acid, like I want a lot of acid because it adds so much brightness to this time of year. So I'm not eating sweet potato every night, but I'll have a bowl of kale, which I rub with, you know, a heap of lemon juice. And, um, and then... That kale salad is like a constantly evolving meal for me because every night I'll add what I have around. Mm -hmm. So it could be like baked tofu or pan fried tofu, baked tempeh, which I've marinated in soy sauce or something. Um, It could be like I'll add some like raw alliums. If I have that around, Um, usually I'll make like a cashew cream dressing or a tahini dressing and I'll just add to that during the week. So... um, I have this kind of never-ending tahini thing going on, you know, where you make one at the start of the week that's quite like a a plain tahini dressing and then as the week goes on I'll add, like, spices to it one night (laughs) or once I had, like, leftover, I was one of the Trader Joe's dips, the spicy one, and I added that to it and it was, like, just changed the whole dressing. So um, there's all sorts of ways to eat still, like, really kind of light But hearty in the winter, and yeah, so the kale salad kind of keeps me going.
0: (laughs) I love like never-ending. Salad dressing. It reminds me of uh, Natasha Pickowitz was telling me about her never-ending soup. Oh, well, yeah, I read about remember, that. Yeah, yes. I think like that was like a, a little moment on the internet about yes. how you could keep some of your broth left over on the stove. Oh, yeah, I think she just leaves it out. And yeah. then um, she has like a deeply seasoned base for the next time yeah. she's making soup. You do that too? I've done that before, yeah.
1: I've made this um, – actually, I think it's in Tenderheart, my upcoming book. It's a seaweed, uh, silken tofu, and – bean sprout soup and I make that. And then the next day it's, it's always too, I'm the only one drink. I'm the only one eating that. So I kind of like, well, I actually just make it for myself. I don't even offer it to other people because <laughs> it's kind of like, once there's these dishes that from my childhood that I make and I don't really like even offer it to my kids because I just want it for myself. And I know that they're going to want something else on top of it. But for me, it's like that soup feels very nourishing. So yeah, I'll like make that, leave it on the stovetop, just in the pan that I made it in. The next day, I'll add something else to it. Um, but the beauty of like something like a, a robust leaf, like a kale. Sorry to go back to the kale. Is you can add lots of stuff to it. Like so, you can add um, like dumplings, for example. If you've got frozen dumplings, which is something I always have in the freezer, you can add the dumplings to, on top of the the kale. Um, there's all these ways of making it really kind of hearty, but to me like that right now that's like my my staple winter <laughs> dish it doesn't sound very wintry but it really you can make it work
0: yeah you know i'm from la so kale salad to me is definitely something I associate with winter Mm. Um, and in general I feel like this idea of having a base thing that you're adapting is really interesting to me because it makes so much sense especially you know before the time that people had refrigeration that of course you would maybe you'd put it somewhere cold but you would just leave it out and then do something else with it and I think sometimes like in this era of little Tupperware that fits everything mm. and a fridge and a microwave like it's sometimes I think it can feel like well I've made this thing and now it's done and yeah. I have to start over from scratch and make another thing instead
1: yeah absolutely I'm a queen of the, the leftovers and kind of repurposing like I don't really love eating leftovers as they are I always have to do something to it so like when I make rice for example I always make more than I need um like I've got a pot of like rice that I'd made on my stovetop right now, which I actually didn't put in the fridge. And I probably shouldn't say that on air. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But my mom always left rice out for the next day. And so it's just rice.
0: Like what what could happen? I know. Apparently it's it goes right in and let us know. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I guess a lot can happen. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we've been talking a little bit about this book, Tenderheart, that I think it's already been released in Australia, but the release is coming up here in the U.S. Um, And I know that it's kind of about a a deeply personal connection that you have to vegetables. And I'd love if you could say a little bit about it and what made you decide that it was time to tell the story.
1: Yeah. So after I wrote To Asia With Love, um, I really wanted to write a vegetable book. Like I really felt like. I needed my own definitive vegetable book. So that was kind of how I approached it. And that's how I told my publisher in Australia, because my books still originate in Australia because... That's just the way it is. It's kind of annoying for a lot of people. Um, But but you
0: originated in Australia. I originated in Australia.
1: (laughs) And, uh, yeah, there's just – I'm just on this kind of cycle (laughs) for some reason and I've just kind of kept it that way because it really works and I love the people I work with in both countries. So we just continue that relationship. But, um, yeah, so I really – I told my publisher in Australia, I really want to do my own vegetable book. And she said, okay, and she just kind of let me – go off on my merry way with vegetables.
0: And what makes something your vegetable book as opposed to the way that vegetables drive all of your recipes?
1: I wanted to have a statement about my 22 favorite vegetables. At the time, it wasn't (laughs) a particular number. I just chose the vegetables that I felt like deserved their own chapter in a book, because every chapter in the book is a vegetable. And I landed at 22. And I really wanted to create a vegetable book that felt very different to every other vegetable book on the market because it's not a new thing. People, I mean, every season I think, you know, what, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten vegetable books are released. But they all tend to be very seasonal driven and Mm -hmm. farming driven sometimes and that's not my story, you know. So I did not want to write another vegetable book like what's been done by others. So I wanted this book to be telling my story about vegetables. And you can see that in some of the vegetables that warrant their own chapters, like there's a taro chapter, there's a seaweed chapter, there's a ginger chapter, there's a daikon and turnip chapter. Um, and the other side of it was when I started writing this book and I didn't really mean for it to happen, but I started writing a book kind of about my dad and about um, – there, no, there is no story that I can tell about the role of vegetables in my life without talking about my dad because my dad was – he worked at the produce markets in Sydney. He was a banana monger
2: mm.
1: um, and having a parent – I didn't know this at the time – but having a parent that works at the markets just – it's is, is, is life-changing because your house at all times is just filled with the most seasonal produce that you can think of. You know, like we – I always say, you know, I had to step over the crates of bananas and oranges and peaches and plums and stone fruit to get to my the laundry or the bathroom. You know, there was <laughs> – the there dream. was There was I – I mean I, – I, when I was a kid, that was just our life. So Mm -hmm. it didn't, I didn't think that it was, I was lucky. um, But it just was like, I just grew up surrounded by fresh produce and and, um, food ingredients. And my dad passed away when I was a teenager when I was 15. And that was when that all changed. And my, I, I started to lead a different life around food. You know, my mum is an amazing cook, which and I wrote a lot about her in To Asia with Love, but our access to fresh, seasonal, hyper-seasonal fruits and vegetables stopped. And I remember at the time my mum had said to me, wow, this is the first time I'm going to the greengrocers, you know, in Australia, because mm-hmm. she, she emigrated to Australia, she married my dad, you know, she had never had to shop for fruits and fruits and vegetables before so that was that story and it was like so I've had like this kind of two lives where I lead, I had hyper, ve- hyper seasonal vegetables and then I didn't and like how do you and then I became a vegetarian you know a few years after my dad passed away so um, I've always had this kind of really real passion for food and vegetables but Tender Heart for me was a way of kind of talking about that transition and dealing with the loss of my dad and how we kind of come out of that loss and still find the joy. And for me, like when I tell people about Tender Heart and what it's about, people I'm scared that they'll think, oh, it sounds super depressing, but it actually isn't. Like it is just the most uplifting book. It's incredibly joyous because it's about kind of, finding a way of staying connected to a loved one who has passed Um, and we all do that in our own ways and for me I think this rabbit you know obsession with vegetables and um, having them as the center of my life is you know partly due to the fact I lost my dad and trying to keep that um, that joy that was in our home when I was a kid alive. For me now in my own home as an adult, so um, it's yeah, it's it was it's just an amazing book for me to write. It was a hard book to write. I mean, at times it did feel heavy because you know, obviously, it's me dealing with you know decades of you know grief and loss and things that I hadn't really dared to even think about and definitely not write down in words and. You know, you know, I come from a Chinese family and it's topics like life, death, sex, tax, you know, don't really talk about any of these things. So to actually talk about these things for the first time. And I remember thinking, what are my siblings going to think of me actually writing about my dad? Mm. Because they had a very, I mean, I think I have two siblings, an older sister, an older brother. And I think all of us experienced that loss um, in different ways. And, and my mum too. And I was, I was actually at home with my mum a lot, you know, during those years, those first few years after he passed away. I was still, a stud- I was in, still in high school and then I was a university student but I lived at home with my mum. And we had a lot of like really special moments together and bonding moments. Um, and I think that's kind of was probably my turning point in terms of my appreciation and, and real deep interest in my mum's life and the way she cooks and all, all of that stuff really kind of came from those years after my dad passed away so um yeah and I think tenderheart is it feels like um the other side of the story because I think after my after I wrote To Age With Love a lot of people like talked about my mum a lot and asked me a lot of questions about her and and I felt like my dad had been written out of my story. Mm. So for me, it's like I really wanted to write him back into it and kind of give him his own space um, within the context of my
0: life. I think that's a really beautiful way to think about it. And also just thinking about myself and all of these people that have read all of your books. And I think it's easy to feel like, oh, I know who Hetty is as a person because I've cooked her food. And you talk about your family and, and your children. Um, mm. But obviously, like, we only see the parts that you show us. And yeah. so I'm excited to get to like see this other part of that. Mm. Um, and I know that it's something we'll talk about on the Taste podcast We'd love to have you back closer to the release, so I don't want to ask too many questions. Mm. But I am curious, just thinking about memory, if um, revisiting any of, like, the vegetables that you're connecting with this period of time reminded you of any recipes or, like, any moments with your father that uh, maybe, like, weren't as top of mind before?
1: Oh, I think all through the book there's, there's a lot of stories about mm-hmm. those days. Um, and, you know, being a vegetarian now, like, it means I can't cook a lot of those recipes because a lot of them like, you know, exactly the way I would have eaten them then because they had like meat in them. But, you know, there's a, I really wanted to have the seaweed chapter because I wanted to do this um, seaweed egg scramble, which, so my dad really, he didn't really cook. Um, My mum did all the cooking, but there was this one dish that he always made when my mum was was sick, well, like when she had the cold or something, she Mm -hmm. would be in bed and he, it would be him in the kitchen and he would always make a salmon scramble like canned salmon Ooh. with egg and it was like the thing it's the only dish I really remember him making but um yeah so there's a like a seaweed egg scramble in the book that's kind of based on him. But, you know, there's other things that I remember, like he was in charge of our after school snack, which was like an official meal in our house. So, (laughs) um, and he kind of used that opportunity to introduce us to more like Western foods, like, you know, Australian meat pies and apple turnovers. And um, he would make these salad rolls, which were just all, I think me and my siblings all agree that was our favourite after-school s- snack. So a was, salad roll? Yeah, so it was like a roll with, um, you know, like salad ingredients. Like, uh, But it was like he had this le- – he had iceberg lettuce and he had chopped it so fine – And I remember we used to think, whoa, like it was all about how fine the lettuce was in the roll. Like it would have ham, but it had like salad ingredients in there. But it was just like we used to think, gosh, is our dad like secretly some like ninja chef or something that we don't (laughs) know about? But like it did conjure a lot of memories like that that I'd forgotten or I hadn't really touched upon that much in my my work so far. Um, But yeah,
0: there's a lot of stories in there. I'm just hung up on a salad roll still. Is oh, yeah. what's the the roll part of it? Is it bread or is it like the lettuce is a roll around something?
1: No, no, it's a um it's a bread roll. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a sandwich basically.
0: I don't know. Sometimes like I feel like Australian slang is a world unto itself yeah. that I know that I don't know about it. So yeah. I just had to double check it wasn't yeah. something crazy. Salad
1: sandwiches are like a huge thing in Australia.
0: Okay, what's a salad sandwich?
1: Uh, So it's, like, just a sandwich Then it has – it's very distinct, though. Like, it's not like – my bodega does, like, salad sandwiches in in Brooklyn, but not like in Australia. It has, like, you know, usually lettuce, tomato, carrot, alfalfa sprouts, um, and canned beetroot, and it has Uh to be canned beetroot. And I read an article the other day where they were saying that it's become back in fashion in Australia, like the salad sandwich. And they were taking the beetroot out, like because it's not trendy enough. And I'm like, that was the best bit, like the, like the it,
0: pop of color, exactly, also. and
1: the distinctive like tang. Um, and you could have cheese on it, or you just have it plain. But usually, you know, um, now they sometimes sometimes people put avocado on it to make it fancy, but. It's, it's like a milk bar thing. So a milk bar is kind of like a bodega, I mm. guess. Um, there are not many of them around anymore in Australia. They're Well, I'm from Sydney. A lot of them have gone, but um, it would be one of the standard things you could buy.
0: It sounds kind of, at least the name and that similar approach is I grew up eating salad pizza in L.A., oh, which wow. is a very niche thing. There's a place called Abbott's in um, Venice on Abbot Kinney that Uh I would get it growing up all of the time. And I was just back in L.A. for the holidays. And I was on that street. And so I had to get one. And um, honestly, like it was not quite as good as I (laughs) remembered. So what's on a salad pizza? It's like a huge triangle New York style slice that has romaine lettuce, like truly Uh just like a green salad. And then um, no tomato sauce, no cheese, but this like very kind of spicy, creamy, dressing it's literally like if you just put salad onto pizza dough oh, wow um and it honestly wasn't as good as i remembered but i posted a picture of it <laughs> on my instagram because i had to because it's just like what's more west la mm. vibes than a salad pizza and everyone was freaking out it had a very divisive reaction i would say oh wow i was, I was like i have got to develop that recipe. i know <laughs> honestly i think you should because i think there's a lot of promise there mm. um because I like eating vegetables and I like eating bread and it's nice to have them together in one package like that. It's like the
1: L.A. version of a Sydney salad sandwich. Yeah, or like the (laughs) California
0: veggie sandwich, which is like the Sydney one that has avocado Mm -hmm. in it. It's quite a classic, I would say. I'm loving this. Yeah. (laughs) I have a question that's kind of outside of the world of food a little Mm. bit, but um, I want to know about your taste in music and like specifically (laughs) because I've noticed that when you post cooking reels on Instagram, you're kind of like not using any of the trending sounds and instead there's like talking heads, psychedelic furs. Are you just super into that style of music or what's happening there?
1: Oh, I'm super into music. Like (laughs) I, um, you know, for me as a kid, like music was my escape. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s. And so, you know, I I grew up listening to, you know, records all day long Uh and watching video clips all day long. And so two things. um, I hate trending music. And for me, my Instagram – and, you know, you have to fight against, you know, trends. You know, you have to fight against wanting the most likes and wanting to go viral. And um, so, you know, early on I decided if I'm going to make reels, I'm going to make them according to how I want them to look and sound – and for me, that's not about sharing music that everybody else is sharing, but it's like sharing – again, it's like a part of myself. It's the music that I want to listen to, that I grew up listening to, that I think other people will like to um, – and it's also fun to create things that are almost like many video clips. You know, I, I lived for video clips. There's actually a recipe in, t- in Tenderheart that is about me watching video <laughs> clips and seeing what the top ten is going to be. And then, um, yeah, so there's this, like, one dish that my mum used to often make when I was watching that particular show. But, um, yeah, I definitely wanted to, you know, share the music that I like and people love it. Like, particularly, like, yesterday I shared... Um, Uncertain Smile by Werther, which is actually um, a pick by my daughter. My daughter's 16. Cool. She's like, really into music and really into music from from classical to, like, you know, new wave, post-punk to, you know, the music of now, um, but more like kind of the retro stuff. And so she actually picked that song for me a few days ago and she said, hey, mum, I think you should use this for an upcoming reel. And I didn't. like, everyone was, like, Commenting, oh, this is such a cool song. So, um, yeah, I get asked a lot about the music and for playlists <laughs> and stuff. But it it really is about just sharing, you know, some great music and great and and using that opportunity for people to enjoy rather than using reels as a way of just trying to get likes or followers or you know some sort of viral status. Like I don't care. Like my. My Instagram is there to be fun, to be informative, to help people, to give people an answer of what they're going to cook um, that night, and why not do it to really good music?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that makes sense, and it it kind of goes back to this idea of um, sharing yourself and sharing that in a quality way, right? And that, like, Mm. maybe you're not trying to capture random people that are clicking on trending sounds, and that's how they find a video. If a video is going viral because Mm. of the sound on it, then that is kind of taking precedence over the content. It's instead that you're just building a whole world around it and letting people see that side of yourself as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: On the viral note, do you ever develop a recipe or take a bite and you just know, oh, this is going to do really well?
1: No. (laughs) You know, it's really hard to know what's going to go viral or what's going to be super popular. Like when you do book for example like to Edge with love I would never have guessed that it would have been the life-changing udon mm. like to me it was just I wanted to do this recipe because I went to this great restaurant in Tokyo and I really wanted to relive that experience and it was like this life-changing moment for me in terms of flavor and texture and I just wanted to share that but people like just have taken it almost to a literal sense it's like this changed their lives, like this actual recipe. And I was like, yeah, that's – and so everybody, people have interpreted it differently. So, But it's um, – you never really know. It, it's always like from the people and I love that. I, I don't write recipes to for them to go viral. Um, I think sometimes I've written a recipe that I've thought would go viral and they didn't. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, you kind of think, oh, things with cheese – it's always going to be popular. Noodles. Um, noodles. Soup. Soup. But you just really don't know what's going to catch on anymore. Um, I think that there's like in Tenderheart in Australia, for example, there's a broccoli loaf um, Which I think I've called broccoli forest loaf, which is based upon purely based upon a photo in the Rose Bakery Breakfast, Lunch, and Tea book, which I've had like even prior to when I started like liking food, Um, and I've always been obsessed with this photo of it's basically a savory loaf with um, broccoli, and it's a cross section photo, Mm. and there's broccoli is kind of growing out of the loaf, and I've, I've never made the recipe, but I've always been obsessed with this photo. And I'm actually obsessed with that book. But I, I really wanted to make my own version of that loaf. And so I did it. It's in the broccoli chapter of Tenderheart and in Australia. Like that was the early like kind of recipe that kind of jumped out. Everybody was making the broccoli forest loaf. And I was really surprised. Like I thought, wow, why would people – that's that's what people are really into and a lot of the kale recipes and it could be like seasonal maybe there was a lot of kale around at the time but you never really know what people's what people will love or really embrace but definitely when you start sharing stuff on Instagram other people get ideas they really want to cook what other people have cooked um, which is why I do basically share almost everything that people tag me on, um, that they cook from my recipes, whether it's from The Times or my books, because people love being part of that community. They love seeing what other people have cooked, sometimes more so than what I've cooked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it might come from you know, I think we've all had the experience of of seeing a recipe developer or a chef and how beautiful their product is. And then when mm. you make it yourself, it, it isn't quite as good. And I think yeah. there's almost something about seeing recipes that are being made by other home cooks yeah. that's showing this is achievable. And maybe it's not going to look exactly like the photo that's been food styled and photographed yeah. in a studio, but that um, people are proud enough to share it in the yeah. first
1: place. It's a really interesting point And I think that That's specifically why I don't use a stylist. I actually do all my own food in my books. Oh, flex. Yeah, (laughs) flex. But like, and it's like actually a non-flex because I think some some of my food photos don't look like very, as professional as other books, you know, like it doesn't feel, um, you know, there's not like, there's not a lot of props around, there's not, you know, all the things that you expect from a cookbook photo, they're not really there, but. I do it really is important to me that the food looks like the way it should look when a home cook has cooked it. And I'm a home cook so it's like, you know, I really want to show that um in a really realistic way in the books.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense and mm. um I, I see that. I think it, it makes it feel like it's achievable for people, which yeah. is always nice. I know we've been talking a lot about books already today, but we do ask all the guests on the Taste podcast if you could write a cookbook or a food culture book without the burden of time, so you have no deadline or budget and you have unlimited money to make it happen. What would that book be? I have, um,
1: there's one, or there's two books, actually. Mm. One is um, a book that I've been wanting to do for years, but it's a market book. It's basically like going to markets all around the world, Um, you know, famous produce markets. Yeah. And kind of covering them and speaking to the people that have the stalls there. I used to live above like Portobello Market in in London mm-hmm. when I lived there for a few years. Um, I've always had a real love and affinity for markets and the smells and the sounds and the bustle of it all and um, it's a real passion of mine. So that was a book that I've always wanted to write but it feels like really hard <laughs> right now. Um, and the other book idea is actually to write my Chinese book, um, you know, To Asia with Love is not a Chinese book. It has a, a lot of my childhood influences in there and my mum's recipes. But it, to me, it's not like it's not if I was to write a Chinese cookbook, I would want to go back to, you know, my family's ancestral homes in mm-hmm. my mum and my dad still have ancestral homes in um, in Gongdong province. And they have, you know, their aunts and uncles, some of them still live there. And I'd love to, like, kind of go back to this area um, in Jongsan, which is the province that they, they grew up and were born. And to actually see that, I went there when I was five. I don't remember it at all. And that would be a, just a huge um, personal kind of you know journey for me to, to go back and to see what it's like and to taste the food there you know mm-hmm. that would be amazing but i don't know when or if that's ever going to happen
0: <laughs> well maybe you could tack it onto the reporting trip for the markets one and then yeah. just knock out yeah i'm sure once. there's good
1: markets there
0: <laughs> yeah well i, I hope both of those books happen and um thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me i had so much fun thank you so much it's been such a fun chat
3: Ron Papracki, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I love talking to working chefs. Gotham, what a legendary restaurant you run! Absolute essential to understanding New York City restaurants is understanding Gotham. Let's just go right into it about Gotham. What. What is Gotham, and how have you uh, transitioned from pastry to running the show?
2: Okay, well, for starters, Gotham Restaurant is uh, certainly a legendary restaurant, I feel, and I'm yeah. sure many others as well. And it's a, it's a place that means a lot to so many people, in, including myself. I mean, I've been there about 10 years, wow. uh, started in pastry, and then obviously transitioned into, uh, you know, running the whole kitchen, including Savory. And, yeah, it's, it's a big— A big project,
3: (laughs) yeah, I'm sure. And and like Alfred Bertali, longtime chef, we'll talk about your relationship with him and running it with him. But currently, I think it's like you're doing excellent food. I've been a couple times in the past six months, and I just enjoy my time at Gotham. It is a stunning dining room, and the location is kind of unique. I feel.
2: Yeah, it's really right off, right off the main drag, but not so much. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, kind of took me off guard when I first started there in May of 2012 was uh, how much of a neighborhood restaurant it is. Uh, you know, Certainly with other restaurants that I've worked in, they're 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 not that and and to have something as large and really just kind of, kind of walk over to 5th Avenue uh from 12th Street and and just see all of the yeah. very you know fancy homes over there and it's really a neighborhood setup It's
3: so interesting cuz it's like in the village um buffering the East Village and I you don't have restaurants that size. You bring up the point of the size of this and the, the vertical space as well. So let me go back to the when you first started working there with Alfred Bertali. What, what was the what was the general kind of cuisine there, and, and how would you describe it early on? And then we'll get to the the progression.
2: Yeah, I mean, his, his food was fantastic, and there's yeah. so many huge following. I mean, many people. You know, he made simply quite mm-hmm. craveable food. And uh, you know the 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 following was really really large, and yeah. and it was uh, slightly intimidating to to have the opportunity to to work for him, and you know certainly uh, you know there's this you know, aura about him, you know, but then once you get to know him, you see really how <laughs> how how great a person he is. I mean, I've
3: been called by chefs after writing, um meaning the negative call you receive as a journalist and somebody's get a call. And I remember I wrote about Alfred back in like two thousand and seven and I misquoted him probably and he was very unhappy and gave me gave me his whole opinion about it. And I was like, All right, that's how he rolls. And you know what? Respect to that, you know, when journalists get shit wrong. You know, pick up the phone and call them. Right. I don't right. think I got it wrong though. For the record, <laughs> it was actually for the right. But whatever. <laughs> but he 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 mentored you obviously in many ways.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, we we both came from you know different backgrounds in a sense where you know I was coming from uh, you know Midtown restaurant and he, and he was certainly the master of the West Village if you will and and certainly a well established restaurant with uh, you know long tenured employees in the kitchen mm-hmm. and the food was very reliable because you had the same individuals or chefs Mm -hmm. making the food year after year after year and so that's really why it became such a such an institution if you will because as as much as trends come and go his food was very reliable yeah
3: ron can you describe the cuisine at gotham because i think you've got french influence you've got it's a new american approach in some ways i hate throwing around these terms i you know it needs to have come from the source from you so describe it
2: yeah, I mean, uh, at the time when I when I entered in 2012 there was it was basically the menu was a hit list of, of sorts and you mm-hmm. know the, looking back at his menu there was the, the miso cod there was a 28 day strip steak which was 12 ounces and mm-hmm. it had all the accoutrements, it wasn't like a steakhouse set where here's the steak and then uh, pick a la carte uh, your side dishes everything was a complete kit on the plate uh, which was nice mm-hmm. um, and there was just uh, a lot of a lot of uh, tall food as well so I to love speak it. Vertical where, space. where you know uh, that you know certainly the the legend of that he was and um you know it it, when i I started when i came in it was about a year or two afterwards that he started to go slightly more horizontal on some things kind (laughs) of taking the seafood salad for example it was such an iconic dish of him where uh it was it was fairly tall and then he changed the set and 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 still kept all the same components and flavors but uh started to go more horizontal if you will
3: and you were the executive pastry chef at the time, and, and correct. I wanted to have you on because this transition from being just pastry to running the full savory side is interesting and and kind of rare. But what kind of desserts were you doing? And and I, we'll get into your history too. But what, what, for Gotham, what were your, some of your your trademark dishes?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I first arrived, the first thing I added on in the fall of of the, my first year was the apple tart to town for two, and and mm-hmm. and um, you know, really kind of. You know, I I came from Gordon Ramsay at the London Hotel here in in Midtown, Mm -hmm. and I was there for five and a half years. And then after working there, uh, really dealing with a couple different outlets, we had a casual dining space of 85 seats, and then also the two Michelin star, which was a 45-seat room, in addition to the 500 rooms, uh, you know, for for, um, room service, service, interim dining. But, uh, you know, when when I arrived there, it was a good learning experience, where I had a lot of ideas to implement, and then I realized you know, I I need to understand the the customer base and Mm -hmm. what they're looking for. And and, Mm -hmm. and certainly going into more, uh, I would say, more classical uh, flavor profiles. Mm -hmm. And that was really a learning experience for me because I was, I wouldn't say, you know, on the edge of avant-garde, but uh, desserts uh, where I was accustomed to... Producing the last five years, they were definitely much more contemporary. Midtown,
3: Ramsey, it all had kind of a contemporary feel to it, but Gotham, more uh, classic, traditional, but also comforting.
2: Yeah, and cra- craveable. Craveable, yeah, sure. Yeah.
3: Um, you were you went to school in Germany. You you write. I think I was reading an interview. You said you got your ass kicked in Germany. So you're in pastry school. Having you done a decade as a landscape designer, so you, you had a career before this. But you're in. You find yourself in Germany. Pastry school, all in German. Ron, what what the hell's going on here?
2: Yeah, so that was a big big career change for me, but it was an opportunity that I had that I that I definitely took. I figured, you know, when would I have this opportunity again? So, uh, packed up, moved over there, and you know, was in an immersive, uh, you know, five day a week, nine to five uh, language school, mm-hmm. and just to learn German. And then once that was done, I uh, you know went around to to. To find a pastry shop or a restaurant that'll take me on as a as an apprentice, and mm. so coupled uh, to doing an apprenticeship program, you need to find a place of a, a place of work, an employer that will sponsor you, and then also you'll have to go to school as well. And so all the schooling was done in German, so that's why I needed to to know that. <laughs> wow! So what are
3: some classic German pastries that you were learning, or were you learning more French? Technique?
2: Well, no, actually, it was it was all all in German, wow. it, you know, and German German style. cuisine yeah. and style for sure. I mean, there, we we got into a lot of laminated breads and doughs, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, there's things like Schmutzana Torta, you know, Schwarzwald Kirsch Torta, which mm-hmm. is black black forest cake, which we're all familiar with. But mm-hmm. uh, there was just so many different things uh, that were that were not French.
3: Yeah. That's cool that that's your background. And, I mean, it it seems like German pastry is is certainly – not on the level, at least in the national, the, the world stage is French pastry, but clearly there's a real history and heritage there.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it was something that I felt that um, when I was finished over there and came back, you know, five, I was over there for five years, but I came back uh, and went right to New York City, mm-hmm. stayed with my sister who lived in Brooklyn, you know, on her sofa for a couple months, probably a couple months longer than she <laughs> wanted me to stay and, until I was able to find an apartment and uh, job-wise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I found that pretty quickly, uh, but the apartment took a longer. Worked at a French pastry shop called Financier Patisserie, mm-hmm. and that was down on Stone Street.
3: Oh, cool. Making a lot of macarons,
2: yeah, making that, but also too um, seeing that there was a niche uh, in in the in the Germanic pastries that I knew, then I started sure. putting that into the rotation as well. That's exciting.
3: Now um, let's talk about the transition that you've uh, that you've made from running the pastry kitchen, which has its own flavor and and schedule, to running the whole show. When you got that call, what was that like? When they're like, "You're going to be the guy."
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I was honored. You know, and very appreciative of that and and certainly uh, up for the challenge. You know, I felt that, you know, if you're if you're any place for a long period of time, you become content, but also very knowledgeable as well. And so, you know, going through a transition of chef change over there and then seeing kind of the the customer base and really understanding the um, the numbers, if Mm -hmm. you will, you know, what what items are. The top sellers, which are the mm-hmm. least, and, and really understanding why and who are dining in, in that area, I felt I had a pretty good handle on on um, you know creating a menu that that not only comforts you know and, and welcomes uh, our regulars, but also something that's really inviting mm-hmm. to uh, to have people come in for the first time to try.
3: What are some of the dishes that you find right now are are really that you brought on the menu?
2: Well, right now we're we're doing a, you know a fun dish is the Arctic char, which um, mm-hmm. you know we actually couple it with a, a Jimmy, Nardello, Jimmy Nardello sauce, yeah, uh, and also a cactus and um, pickled pickled onions, and it, it's a dish that yeah adds a little heat with the yeah. uh, with the chilies, mm-hmm. and uh, but but really it's a it's it, it all tastes very familiar together, but also it kind of kind of comes out of that that box. You know that routine yeah. of, of Arctic char. Yeah, or it's something
3: that you want a nice piece of fish. I mean, you get some older clientele, and they're just like, "I'd like a nice piece of fish." There you yeah. go.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is <laughs> this definitely is is you know hits all the right notes I for me.
3: Um, I want to talk about your opinion about pastry. You must have some opinions because you 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 work in here and you work in you know various levels of dining, middle fine. You've worked at a pastry shop. What are some pet peeves you have about? Pastry in New York City.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I love trying anything. You know, in terms awesome. of what what's on the menu, I love love giving it a, giving it a shot. But in, you know, I, I like to have simplistic flavors that that make sense. I mean, uh, you know, every, everybody should have some type of twist or mm-hmm. a little a little um, action, if you will, going on. But it it shouldn't be overcomplicated. I think a lot of people, uh, young chefs, when when they go out and and they tend to overcomplicate things, and it, it kind of loses the the overall yeah. appeal, you know. And I know that for myself, you know, growing up in, in, in pastry, in the profession, that it was always, you know, we had a lot of, uh, at the time, uh, a lot of uh, chefs from Europe there with being very exploratory and, and, and yeah. were really very inspiring, but also, too, you know, 9, 10, 11 components on a, on a dish, and then you just kind of have to... Call timeout
3: call timeout maybe maybe take a take a beat take out like half of those components and um, simplicity is sometimes the most difficult form of cooking right I exactly
2: mean, exactly that's why the apple tart is yeah. still on the menu you know it, we have it on from the first day of fall to the first day of spring and and really it's you know you have apples sugar butter and um, puff pastry and uh, you know but there's a lot of ways to make it right and yeah there, you know there's one way to make it right and there's <laughs> many ways to make it wrong
3: love that uh, have you watched the bear? Have you watched the menu? Uh,
2: I I did not see the menu. I was told to see it. Yes, um, I, that's something that I'll 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 be sure to watch. You will love when, it when I don't have to pay for it. No, <laughs> you will love it. It's on,
3: it's on HBO. It's streaming now. Okay. If you have that streaming service, but sure, sure. It's uh, it's it's so
2: good. It's worth okay. It. Yeah, and yes, in regards to the bear, I I did see. Oh. I did see that.
3: Okay, so Ron, is it is it triggering a little bit? Do you feel do you feel like a lot of feels when you're watching it?
2: Yeah, I would say fifty percent of the time. <laughs> you know,
3: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a show that we keep coming back with working chefs because it, it, it's pretty realistic in, in many ways. I mean, not, not not perfect, but
2: yeah, right. I mean, there there, there does need to be a embellishment and some excitement there too because yeah. it is a show that that draws viewers.
3: Restaurant Week is happening right now. It's like a grand tradition in New York City in January, February, when times are a little slower for all restaurants to do these specials, these special set menus, you're participating, What's your what's your take on restaurant week? I know it can be difficult for a staff because it totally changes economics. There's definitely different levels of demand.
2: Yes, absolutely. So looking at it from my perspective now, I think it is it's a great thing to participate in. <laughs> yeah, as <laughs> a know, guy at, running
3: at, the show with the at, PL in front of him. Yes. Yeah.
2: I mean, certainly as a as a cook, it's it's something that kind of messes with your with your routine, if you will, right. in, in terms of uh, cover counts and also dining, dining trends or habits. What pe- how people are eating and and right. what what uh, menu items are selling more than others. Where um, it's it's important now. And <laughs> if you if you're not participating now, you're going to be cutting cutting staff's hours. You're going to you know, and then that can also you know. Lead to staff attrition, and that's the opposite of what we want right yeah. now. Yeah. So,
3: what's on the menu? What's one dish Are you you put that char on?
2: Uh, no char. Yeah. But we do have a delicious branzino on there, nice. and it has, um, you know, fennel, fennel puree, and some uh, charred uh, pepperdew peppers on there, and uh, it's it's really a fantastic, <clears throat> tasty dish. As a young New Yorker,
3: uh, I certainly loved Restaurant Week. It was like one of my favorite weeks, I, yeah, or, or two weeks, whatever it was. I, I used to make like four or five reservations. Yeah, no, 11. I mean,
2: it, it's currently it's four weeks right now, and um, it, it's something that allows people to to have an opportunity to come in that uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and not really fully commit to you know the costs of a, of a restaurant, and 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 um, you know, it's something that if you'd like to like to have this little preview, then perhaps you'd like to come. Mm-hmm. You know, some other time. I love the
3: aesthetic, too of Gotham, and I think it's a beautiful place to dine. I think you've lightened it up. I mean, I remember for years ago it was darker and it felt a little more enclosed, but you've opened up the ceiling, and I love the art. I mean, you have a rotating gallery. It feels like.
2: Yeah, no, it's really special. I mean, there's there's people that have particular areas where they like to come in to yeah. repeat dine in their in their area with the uh, with their corner of, mm-hmm. of artwork, and uh, you know, it's certainly certainly a great you know um a venue in which to kind of highlight a lot of the works that are there
3: ron let me ask you many chefs have libraries of cookbooks that you go back to um do you have any in your collection either on the dessert the either on the dessert side or the the savory side that you that you just love to read
2: yes i mean i i have a huge collection of cookbooks i mean literally hundreds and um you know, from from the pastry perspective, uh, I have a lot of books from from the Spanish, the Spanish pastry chefs. You yeah, know, yeah. whether it's uh, Ramon Morato or Orio Bellagor, Paco Torreblanca, mm-hmm. Albert Adrià, on and on. You know, one one book that was very inspirational for me was the Natura book mm-hmm. by um, Albert Adrià. I believe he put that out. You know, I was working at Gordon Ramsay at the time. I want to say maybe two thousand nine or so, and uh, you know, it, it really. <sighs> The best way to describe his plating style is very. It was very, um, you know, hence the natura. It was mm-hmm. it was natural, but it was very environmental, and it yeah. just it just really looked like, uh, you know, whether it be seascapes or landscapes or moonscapes, and, and cool. that was something that really, really affected me, and certainly wanted to kind of re- replicate in, That's s- cool. in some capacity.
3: Wonderful. I mean, that must be exciting when you when you read a book and you see a, a moonscape, a pastry with moonscape. Like, wow. It's amazing. Have you done anything similar to that?
2: Uh, I've taken components. So the yeah. fun, the fun thing is, is that you know, with his desserts, you know, we're just talking about multiple components and kind of being restrained, but uh, there there would be multi you know, seven to. 10 components yeah. on, a, on, a, on a dish, but certainly taking certain elements and then kind of interacting them with your ideas. Yeah. And, and, and um, yeah, I mean, I've used a lot of his stuff over the years.
3: Do you ever get to have pastry around New York? Do you have any favorites? I, I wonder if you you dine out for inspiration, if there's anybody you love right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, um, you know, desserts uh, – you know, I, I, I don't really know what the the trend is in terms of you yeah. know the the hot spots of of desserts. But, Fair enough. Uh, you know, my my friend uh, opened up a restaurant, Coleman, and uh, the desserts there are friend. Getting Fantastic. wonderful reviews, sure. Coleman.
3: Yes. I think you're the third person who's mentioned it in recent weeks. Okay.
2: <laughs> I think we give, he gives us ten dollars every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a you get a you get a free <laughs> well,
3: you get a free bread basket if you if you now yeah. mention the name. No, that's cool. Um. Back in the history of New York dining, are there any pastry chefs that come to mind that like wow just wowed you?
2: Well, I mean, it was really Sam Mason, uh, mm-hmm. Johnny, Taylor. Ozzini, Johnny Ozzini, yeah, Taylor, the yep. restaurant that was short, short-lived.
3: Yeah, great restaurant. I reviewed it; it was great. Loved it. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Johnny Ozzini, you know, Michael Scones, you know, kind of that whole generational click there that yep. was really, really the, the 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 they were in the they were at the time. You know, top of the game and, and mm-hmm. still are probably in other things that they're doing now. But uh, when I moved here uh, in 2004, they were really, you know, the the players.
3: Yeah, I mean, Lisconis at La Bernadette, incredible talent. And now he's an instructor. He runs culinary education. Yeah. That's cool. Gordon Ramsay, you work for him. Yes. So I'm guessing he's a nice guy. I just feel that way because he's so not on television. So usually it's the flip. I'm giving or not, correct me.
2: Yeah, no, he was, you know, the the, the fun thing is that uh, when that place opened back in November of 2006, uh, he was there every day uh, really getting the, th- the getting the restaurant off the ground and, you know, I think he played everybody, you know, that <laughs> character <laughs> into, into really making him, you know, come across as a very authoritative figure and having stuff mm. done right, but also there was a lot of pressure to not only on us but on him to have it be successful. But, uh, Really nice guy, you know, really very friendly. You know, the the thing is, is that when he would enter the kitchen, he would go and shake everybody's hand mm-hmm. before he before he started a service. And, uh, you know, and that, that didn't exclude the waiters, captains, and, and dishwashers. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I've heard great things about him personally. I'd love to have him on the show at some point. Ron, we asked all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would that book be?
2: It would be about uh, all things desserts, you know, from restaurant desserts all the way through to the making of chocolate. And I would also include the, you know, my my the history of how I got to that point. I think a lot of books that I read and I enjoy reading, uh, they, they really explain the desserts and also the ingredients. But, uh, you know, you kind of want to read more about the individual. And I think having some bio in there yeah. with some extent, I think, can certainly be be interesting
3: that'd be very cool i appreciate it ron paparaki thank you for joining the taste podcast
2: thank you for having me
0: the taste podcast is hosted by matt rodbard and me eliza abarbanel the show is produced by shalia harris and pat Stengo and edited by clayton gumbert theme music by steve Rydell. visit taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening